Welcome to church. Hi, Troy. It's good to see you, Troy. I'm glad you're here. Well, everybody, hello. My name is Brian Williams. I'm the young adults pastor here. Sarah and I are a team and get to partner in, in serving and loving all of you guys and seeing what God does in and through this place and this people. And uh, tonight, I'm, I'm thankful to get to open the word of God with you and, and to see uh, how he's going to meet us tonight. Because uh, he does. Every time we open his word, he meets us. And he does something. We're going to be talking about that in our passage. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. We've been walking through the book of Isaiah, uh, kind of a flyover, hitting the, the highlights along the way, and we've made it to 55. It's pretty good. We've, we've done well, everybody. So Isaiah 55, we're going to start at verse 1, because that's where we should start. It reads like this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Guys, this is a good passage tonight. It's a really good one. Uh, I'm so excited to be walking through this. Uh, this is just verse one. As we start verse one, obviously this is poetic language. You know, there's symbolism here. He's not simply speaking of water and milk and money, but of deeper, more profound things. I think you're smart people. You're kind of picking up on that, or you will. So, the basics, the straightforward, my summary of kind of what's happening here in this first thing, and then we're going to break it down further. In essence, we are invited to come and receive that provision which the grace of God has made for poor souls like us. And that's redemption. Redemption. You know, Matthew Henry, he's a 17th century preacher. He wrote kind of the like seminal, like English commentary on the whole Bible. And uh, I spent some time preparing this and thinking through and reading these scriptures. And I went to his commentary and uh, I, I really just want to use his structure that he gave for this, this first verse, just one verse. And he used six probing questions to explore this verse. And I was just, I loved it. And so I want to share it with you, these questions that he had about this verse. They're kind of uh, intuitive. The first is this. Who's invited? Who's invited? At the beginning here, we get this incredible invitation from God to come and essentially be satisfied. But who is this invitation to? Who is invited? Oh, you know, everyone. Everyone is Everyone is invited. Come all you who are thirsty. The poor, the maimed, the blind, the haggard, like Jews, Gentiles, men, women, anyone who thirsts is welcome. I love how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, whoever can be picked up out of the highways and hedges, the gospel covenant excludes none that do not exclude themselves. The gospel covenant excludes none that do not exclude themselves. So, who's invited? Everyone. Second question, what are the qualifications? What are the required qualifications to be satisfied at no cost to ourselves? And this is a simple one. We must thirst. We must thirst. We must be hungry for what it is we need. And those that are content uh, with the desires of their flesh and the short-lived enjoyments of sin, and those 
that depend upon their own merit, the righteousness of their deeds and intentions, both like the rebel and the self-righteous, neither of these thirst. And so they are not filled. Those with no sense of their need have no craving for its fulfillment. Do you know your need? Do you thirst? Do you thirst for what it is that God provides? Now, this is true of the sluggard, the murderer, the adulterer, the atheist, just as it is for the self-righteous, like holier-than-thou hypocrite who attends church every week. This is why Jesus railed against the Pharisees so much. He's like, because their devotion led to pride, not humility. They abandoned their need, ignored it. It's the same reason that Jesus said it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Like the rich are often more isolated from their needs and thus more ignorant of their weakness to fulfill them on their own. A denial of our need, be that through rebellion or self-sufficiency, is the only disqualifier for receiving the joys of God's provision. To deny our need is the only disqualifier for receiving the joys of God's provision. Those that thirst, that recognize their need, are invited to the waters just as those that are heavy laden are invited to rest in Christ Jesus. It's one and the same God extending the same offer. In Matthew Henry's words, he wrote this, where God gives grace, he first gives a thirsting after it. Where he has given a thirsting after it, he will provide. He will provide. So what are the qualifications required? We must thirst. We must thirst. We must be hungry for what it is we need. Next question. Where are they invited? To the wellspring of life. To God himself. Those that thirst are invited to the waters, to the wellspring of life, and to the, the market, you might say, where there is an abundance of refreshment and sustenance. This is referring to Christ Jesus himself, the bread of life, as he calls himself, the giver of refreshment that will become within one a wellspring overflowing unto eternity, as he said to the woman at the well. Jesus said in John six thirty seven, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And when Jesus said these things, he made a definitive statement. Jesus declared that he is the fulfillment of this very passage in Isaiah 46. He is the fulfillment of it. He made clear that the symbolism of Isaiah 46 referred to him. The, the thirst for wholeness with God, the thirst for grace is filled. It is met and satisfied in Jesus' life and in his death, burial, and resurrection and all that that means for our lives and of course the sending of the Holy Spirit. We are invited to the wellspring of life to redemption and to restoration with God himself. That's what we're invited to. Where are, or what are they invited to do is Matthew's next question. I like calling him Matthew. That's as if he's not like, you know, 300 years older than me. Oh, Matthew. What are they invited to do? To be satisfied. To be satisfied by God. Come, buy, and eat, drink milk and wine. I love this because uh, milk and wine are prized exports of the tribe of Judah. 
This is like their best stuff. And water certainly would do the job, right? To quench someone's thirst. But Christ outdoes our expectations. He always outdoes our expectations. He provides sustenance that exceeds our greatest imaginations. And he gives us the best there is to enjoy, and that's himself. Life and relationship and friendship with him exceeds all expectations, all of them. Just as a desert wanderer who's like a thirst for a gulp of water would be refreshed in excess if given not just water, but milk and wine, the best of the land. So, our final question here, who accounts for the expense? Who accounts for the expense of this provision? Well, it's not us. It's not us. God covers the cost. It says, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Newsflash, we got no money. (laughs) We got nothing to offer. He continues, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says it twice to emphasize the reality of we got nothing. We got nothing to offer. The provision that is offered to us is invaluable. Invaluable such that no price could account for it. Nothing we could give could account for it. Especially like think of the currencies we have to work with. We got like gold, silver, you know, back in the day, the dollar. We got notoriety, we got clout, we got power maybe. But, but like the sum of all of that stuff for all of humanity throughout all of history, the sum of all that humanity could offer still falls short. It's dust in the wind compared to the life of Christ offered on the cross for our sake. We don't come close like even our, our, our wisdom, all of that we've created, uh, our best deeds, like, like the, the best ideas we have, the, the like wealth of our minds and the currencies of our soul, our, our intentions. It's like confetti. You know, if you ever like at the Super Bowl, did you see all that confetti come falling down? It looks really pretty for a moment, right? But moments later, it's just trampled underfoot, swept up and thrown away. And here lies the tension that many of us feel, I think, in following Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you've been walking with him for a while, or even if you've just been sitting in church and hearing some of this stuff for a while, maybe you feel this tension. And it's that uh, all that we are, all that we are, all that I am, can't even scratch the surface of what it costs to satisfy my needs. It can't, I, I can't scratch the surface of, of what it is I truly long for and, and to meet it myself or to, to, to give what's needed to receive in return what I so long for. And yet, like over and over again, we see throughout the scriptures the reality that, that to experience the fullness of what has been made available to us in Jesus requires the giving of all of ourselves to him. Like this tension of, of I got nothing to offer and yet it requires everything I have. It's this weird place that, that, that we walk through while we're in these mortal bodies. And, and I hope it, it draws us to the place of our need and our weakness, the profound beauty of God's grace. 
Because that tension, how it flows out is this, this sentence, I'll give you it. To truly follow Christ requires everything and yet anything. A first step, a mere thirsting is enough for the gracious heart of God to make up the difference. He is good, my friends. He is so, so good. Continues in verse two. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Uh, two weeks ago, um, I spoke about idols. We, we looked at Isaiah 46 and, and this passage, this verse here really rings all those same bells for me that, that we spoke on in that message two weeks ago. Like, why spend your labor and toil on that which is not fulfilling? When God, in him, you have the best there is, and without money, at no cost to you, you receive it. And yet we toil on all these worthless things, giving ourselves over again and again to things that, that end up nowhere, when the whole time God's just handing it like this, going, I'm right here. You don't even have to give me anything. I'm, I'm just right here. Continues in verse three. Give ear, come to me, listen that you may live. I'm gonna pause because I think the New Living Translation, I, I really like how they translate this verse. By the way, this was all written in Hebrew originally. And so there's translation and we can talk about that if you're confused about translation. But you, everybody knows, right? Like if I were to tell you like, go to an uh, English as a second language person and I told, you know, I don't know, 10 of you, um, go explain to that person what sup means. You'd all say the same thing, but in totally different ways, right? Like you'd all say it the same, essentially the same meaning, but you'd say it in different ways. And so translation, it's tough and it comes out in different ways. Anyway, there's beauty in that and we can learn from it and it can be an enriching. enriching. And so that was a tangent. Uh, back to verse three. Verse three in the NLT says it this way, come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I love that. With your ears wide open, listen and you will find life. It continues in verse three. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you, you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. <laughs> he has endowed you with splendor. So verse three, right? I think we all get that one. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, listen, and you will find life. That's pretty straightforward. But the rest of this maybe it needs a little explanation. Like there's something here about everlasting covenant, uh, God's love for David, like David and Goliath fame, that David. And, and then you got this people coming to him and submitting to him, even those that don't know him. Like, how's that work? <laughs> and if you've been in church a while or if you know your Bibles, this all makes a lot of sense. You're seeing all the hyperlinks that this is speaking of to, to Jesus and to the Old Testament and to all throughout it. But if this is new to you, uh, I'm going to give a little explanation here. 
First off, this was written uh, to the Israelite people, right? We've talked about this over these weeks. Uh, these are the chosen people of God, and, and it's written to them as they were in 700 B.C., a few decades prior to their exile to Babylon because they really sucked at doing the things that God called them to do. And he's referring to, to a covenant that these people would have been super aware of, very, very aware of. It's God's covenant with David, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7. And it's a promise of a permanent homeland with no threat from other nations, no wars, and with a descendant of David eternally enthroned. And it was built upon past covenants of God with Moses and with Abraham. And Israel, like I said, they didn't do a good job. They did a terrible job of reflecting who God was and showing the world his goodness and kindness and love. And so there was correction coming. But even so, these people who correction has not yet happened, it has not yet come, they've heard that it's coming, they know it's coming, and even so, God says to them in the midst of it, in verses three and five, that he is ready to renew his covenant again. Before they've even been corrected, he's ready to renew his covenant with them. He will keep it. He will keep his covenant with them, even though they have abandoned their end of the deal. God is faithful. He is so faithful. At the core of God's promise to David, like this thread that runs through every action of God recorded in the Old Testament right into the New, is his plan for redemption. And not just for his people, the Israelites, but for all the earth. It's an invitation to all who are thirsty to come and drink from the wellspring of life that is Christ Jesus himself. Even far off people who have never heard of the Jewish nation would one day pledge their devotion to this king from David's lineage. And like, truly, truly, this has come to pass. Like, there are believers of every nation and tongue, or there will be one day. It has come to pass, and yet it's not fully completed, but it will be fully completed. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It will be completed in full. See, Jesus, who came from the bloodline of David, is forever enthroned on high, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, and God fulfills his promises despite the people's unworthiness. God is reassuring the people that his covenant with David and the windfall it will lavish upon them is not just for them, but also that though they won't see it during their generation, it will come. It will happen. He will do it. He will keep his promise. And of course, you and I, like we stand in a different time, right? With a different perspective on all this than the original audience. And for us, he has already begun its fulfillment. Like Jesus came, he testified, he sacrificed, he conquered death, and still he's not done yet. He is not done yet, my friends. He promised to return and redeem the whole earth and make all things new and to judge the living and the dead. To put an end, not just to the act of war, but putting an end to the very source of war. Sin within the human heart and Satan, the great tempter, both will be done away with. And what a magnificent honor that this son of God would come from this people, the Jewish family. 
they have truly been endowed with splendor, would you not say? It continues in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to God and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Like Isaiah tells the listeners and through them us, to call upon God while he's near. Call upon God while he is near. Of course, God is always near. God is always near. In Jeremiah 23, 23, he says about himself, I am a God who is near, <laughs> declares the Lord, not a far off God. Or we also read in Paul's great address to the philosophers in Athens in Acts 17, where he's speaking of God creating and caring for humanity. And then he says in verse 27, God did all this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and they will find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is near. God is near. But as we talked about two weeks ago, it is us who create the distance. God is not planning to move away from us, but we often move away from him. Like, don't wait until you have drifted farther from God than you are now to repent and turn towards him. If you are not moving towards God, then time is not on your side. But if you are moving towards God, time is fully on your side. Like when we do the same thing over and over again, that action, that thought, whatever it may be, does not leave us in the same place it once did. Now you're in a different place after the first time you lied about why you were late. Anyone ever done that? I have. I tell you this. I, I use this analogy because it's poignant to me and I need to be convicted. You're in a different place after the first time you lie about why you were late than you are the 200th time you lie to someone about that. Like that act, that thought repeated again and again is entrenching into who you are and how you think about yourself and the world around you. Like, have you ever seen these old pictures of like the Model T's, Model A's, all the older cars and roads that were just mud and whatnot. Like that car and all the cars that went before it driving the same spot over and over again, those ruts that those tires in get deeper and deeper and deeper. The more you drive that path, the more that path gets just worn in, the harder it is to get out of it because the deeper and deeper the ruts get. And like future you, will be more entrenched in the thoughts, ideals, and patterns you have today if you continue in them. Whatever they are, good or bad, whatever they are, what, if you continue in the same thoughts, the same patterns, the same values, it's going to entrench deeper and deeper and deeper into you the longer and longer you do it. Like habits quite literally form us into like it's literally physiologically within our brain, within our body and within our soul, our identity, it is rutted into us. It affects us. But here's the great news. Turn to God and he will have mercy on you and will freely pardon you. Like start steering out of those destructive ruts so that you can drive the pleasant road and begin the process of letting God transform you by the renewing of your mind 
so that you may know and experience the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Like future you will be more entrenched in the thoughts and the values, the patterns you have today if you continue in them. And so what patterns, what thoughts, what values should you continue in and which ones are unbecoming of a child of God? Don't wait until you have drifted farther away from God to seek him. Because later in life, turning to him may be far more difficult the deeper your ruts become. The sooner we repent and turn to him, the more time we have on our side for seeing the transforming power of God manifest in us. And, and it just means less sin and destruction sown within us and in the relationships around us and in the world around us. Everyone's better off the sooner we turn to him and draw near to him. Seek him now and he will not turn you aside. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've been doing, no matter how you've been operating or thinking or any of that stuff, no matter how much work it's going to take to get you back out of that rut, he will not turn you aside. He will not abandon you. He will come right with you and help you out. Verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I many a prayer, a uh, desire have been earnestly laid before God for blessing with no hesitation to consider or ask what his plans may be. His plans are not my plans. His plans are not your plans. And his plans are better. His plans are better. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His thoughts are better. We are to consider what he says. We are to contemplate what he does and wrestle with what he reveals about himself. But we have no authority with which we can judge him. His way and his thoughts are higher than ours. And we're just like foolish to try to fit God into our mold to make his plans and purposes conform to mine. But rather true joy and delight, and the answering of all your prayers, whatever we may ask for in Jesus' name, flow from a heart set on aligning, on conforming to God's, God's good pleasure. Like After all, no matter what, his ways are better than mine. His thoughts on this situation or on that person, they're better, they're more accurate, they're more true, they're more whole, they're more loving than any of my own thoughts. And so why not seek him and say, Lord, what do you think on this situation? And that's what I'll pursue. That's what I'll ask for. That's what I'll pray for. Lord, transform my mind so that I see them as you see them, so that I desire what you desire. Lord, I want your thoughts because they're better than mine. I want your thoughts because they're better than mine. Now, I think of it like this. Have you, have you ever been in a corn maze? That's really pretty, right? I don't know where that is, but I was like, never been in a corn maze like that. <laughs> well, you can see on the side screens, right? Maybe up here. There's that little tower in the middle. This is like a big maze. They had to have a tower in the middle in case someone got lost. So someone up there could be like, go left. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, thanks. And go left. That makes sense, right? But what, what like... 
it's a fool, like a real fool who stands in that corn maze correcting the person who's up on that tower and directing them which way to go. You know, they're saying, go left. And you're like, no, I'm going to go right. <laughs> it's right. And they're like, no, you, you should go left. Like, left is the way out. And it's like, no, you're wrong. It's right. I know. Gosh, stop talking. <laughs> but how is that not our position with the Lord often? Maybe, maybe not your position, but I see it in my own heart. How often I reject his instruction, his ways, his thoughts. What a fool to stand in the midst of that maze and go, ah, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Man, true joy, true delight flow from a heart set on aligning, on conforming to God's good pleasure, to his thoughts and his ways. Don't be that person. For your sake and for the sake of everyone around you, don't be that person. Recognize your need for better thoughts than your own. Thirst for better thoughts than your own, for better ways than your own. And, and let's be real, you probably actually have a lot of thoughts that are good, a lot of ways that are good, a lot of desires that are good. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that confirmed? And to say, oh, thank you, Lord, that I see you are with me, you are in me, you are shaping me, I am desiring the things you desire. I do have gifts. I do have insight. I do have wisdom. It's just good all around to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you desire? What do you intend? What are your ways? What are your thoughts? We either be corrected to something better or encouraged in what he's done and made within us. Verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that, does, that goes out from my mouth. This is God speaking, right? It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. If he said it, we believe it, right? There are few, few convictions that will produce more fruitfulness in a person's life than to trust what God says and to believe that he has the power to do what he purposes to do. Like, it, that, it'll produce more, uh, cur- like, wholeness and beauty and life and faith and remove more worry, more stress, more bitterness. If we just trust what God says and believes that he, believe that he has the power to do what he intends to do. If he said it, we can believe it. Verse 12, he says, you, uh, right, he's speaking to the people of Judah, the people who know their immediate future is quite bleak. He's speaking to them. He's saying, you, you guys, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. This would be a shocking statement. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bushes, will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. I love these verses. <laughs> for you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. When God's people turn to him, and listen to him, and his word does 
his work in them, joy and peace will always be the result. Will always be the result. In fact, the joy, the joy is so great that even the mountains and the hills and the trees of the field join in. Like how beautiful is that? I've often marveled at creation, just doing what it was created to do and so fulfilling its worship. To say the trees are clapping their hands with joy in chorus with the redemption of God's people is just a fact of reality that's constantly happening. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, my daughter, she's two, she fell asleep in the car and so I parked on the side of the road up on a hill near like in a field with this tall grass in it. And it was a breezy day. And so like, you know, the wind's blowing around in the grass and I had a book and I was just reading while she napped in the back of the car. Welcome to parenthood. If you didn't know, I know some of you are parents, so you know what I'm talking about, but, uh, well I'm reading and at some point she's behind me. I can't see her, you know, unless I'm looking and I'm reading at some point she must've woken up and just been staring at the window, like watching that tall grass blow in the wind because I, I was drawn out of my reading by her, like, she has such a sweet little voice. Just saying, Daddy, look, the wind is dancing. <laughs> and it's just like, ah. Oh. She noticed creation's joy and drew my attention to it as well. Like creation worshipped and it stirred me to worship too. It stirred her to worship too. To know the joy set before us of what God is calling us to. You know, band, if you guys want to make your way up, we'll, we'll start wrapping up. I, I love trees. I just love trees. Maybe that's why I'm, the rest of you are like, yeah, the trees clap their hands. I'm like, yes, they did. Oh my gosh, they do. I love it. Like the trees sway in the breeze all year long from century to century, dancing in praise and adoration, worshiping the one who created them in the simplest and most profound way. And I hope there's a lesson for you to learn here. They're, they're, they're worshiping in the simplest and most profound way, and that is by just being a tree and doing what trees were made to do. That's the most profound worship we can have, is to just be you, and do what God created you to do. It's not complex. It's not a million different things. The way of God is simple. He says, I made you the way I made you on purpose. And I want to use you. I want to fulfill you. Come. Come, let me do so. The land itself rejoiced. The land itself rejoiced with the redemption of God's people how much more can we rejoice in it in the redemption God gives us? Verse 13, God takes away the barren land. Uh, he takes away the curse, the thorns and the thistles, and he brings forth beauty and strength. Like the curse uh, of the fall of the sin of Adam and Eve and every human in their wake and all that poured forth from it will be restored to peace, will be restored to strength and wholeness with God. He said he will do it and his word will not return void. He will remove the curse. And notice this last sentence of chapter 46. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. When the Lord restores, all the work is done for his name. 
and for his glory. And when the Lord restores, the work is secure. It is an everlasting sign, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So with that truth, my friends, let's stand and worship and praise full of gratitude to the one who calls, come all you who are thirsty for I will satisfy you. Come and be satisfied at his table. He is good, amen?